0: Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been Incredibly influential in human history, from the time we were hunter gatherers looking for fresh sources of water, to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities. Eventually, having plumbing, uh, the way that it changed sanitation, uh, irrigation, and what is the what's the future? Of water. Are we going to have enough of this stuff? How can we make more clean, fresh water? I just listened to a very interesting episode Alchemy, Turning Milk into Water, Sustainable Water Management. And this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water, coffee, industrial practices, sustainable value chain, and social responsibilities with uh, this man, Carlos uh, Gali, who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app everybody i thought i'd give a couple of quick plugs for my friends mike kaplan and zach sherwin who created the th- the theme song for this podcast the best theme song for any podcast as far as i'm concerned i know a lot of you seem to agree it gets mentioned a lot on uh in itunes reviews and, and people write me on facebook and all that so if you appreciate that song show those guys some love um and you're not uh I'm not asking you to like give them money or anything go go and uh well you can do that as well but go and go and check out their websites check out all of their content Zach sherwin is an amazing uh rapper slash comedian who um is incredibly talented you if you've ridden in my car in the last few months you've heard his new album because I've forced you to listen to it because it's amazing um so you can check out uh, Zach's new album Rap if you want. He does epic rap battles of history. He has a ton of amazing YouTube videos that will absolutely blow your mind, I promise. And, And also check out Mike Kaplan. Both of these guys are a couple of my oldest friends in comedy. Met them both in Boston. That's where I started. Uh, years and years ago, a lifetime ago, and I met Mike Kaplan first, Zach hadn't started yet, and so Mike and I have been friends for 11 years, something like that. Man, we are old, wise men now, and uh, Mike is a very funny, very punny guy, um, big into words. You guys like words? Yeah. Then you're going to like Mike Kaplan. Go and, oh, and if you like podcasts, make sure and check out his podcast, Hang Out With Me, uh, produced by uh, the Keith and the Girl um, show. It's on their network. So go and check out his podcast. He was on America's Got Talent this year. He has tons of late-night appearances that you can watch. Um, And so you can go to his site, Mike Kaplan. That's Mike with a Y and a Q. M-Y-Q, Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, dot com, and Zach Sherwin, uh, that's S-H-E-R-W-I-N. Is there a different way to spell Zach than Z-A-C-H? Well, anyway, that's how he spells it. ZachSherwin.com, MikeKaplan.com. Go support those guys. Send them a note. Tell them you like the theme song that they made. Um, For this podcast And uh, yeah Get some free entertainment Um, Thank you guys for listening And enjoy
1: Are we? Yes Where are we here? Why are we here? Not entirely clear We are misfits thrust into existence By random chance With
2: no hints at all As to how we're supposed to make sense of it all It's immensely bizarre
0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today my guest is Professor in the Department of Psychology at UC Davis, Jeff Sherman. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
0: I'm excited. Today you study social cognition yeah. and um and I I see a lot of your work has to do with uh with prejudice and um and stereotypes and how it, how how the brain processes these these ideas is this this a lot of um just like how our brain processes in and out group
2: behavior yeah except i yeah i don't focus much on the brain per se okay i'm not not a neuroscientist all right but um we assume everything we study is happening in the brain (laughs) right right (laughs) right
0: but um, be weird if it wasn't yeah Uh, i I, i'm only racist in my foot that's
2: right (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah, I'm interested in how people think about and perceive other people, and especially the way that the social categories we belong to influence that okay yeah
0: so what um how did you first off, how did you pick this field? how did you start and um, and can you can you set up kind of just some introductory ideas for my listeners, because we haven't really talked about this topic before. Sure. If you could do just like a little 101 um, to get into this, and then we'll we'll get into like specifically your work. Okay. Um,
2: how I got into it or what it is?
0: Uh, how you got into it and, and what it is. <laughs> All right. At, how, how I got into it time. is,
2: is <laughs> I probably have the uh, least interesting origin story of any scientist you talk to. <laughs> I'm in the family business. Uh,
0: I I heard that about you. I heard your dad. uh, Yeah.
2: My dad's a social psychologist, a professor at Indiana University, which is where I grew up.
0: Okay. Uh,
2: My sister, I have an older sister who has a PhD in social psychology and worked in market research for a long time. And my mother is a clinical psychologist. So I was trying really hard to not be a psychologist.
0: And you just weren't good at guitar or something? or <laughs> You know,
2: I, I liked philosophy, but when I. Oh, I the see. problem was all the stuff I was interested in, when I went and looked in psychology, it was the same stuff, but they had data. Uh, and I really liked having data. yeah, Instead yeah. of just arguing, you could actually argue with math and say, okay, well, here's what the data actually look like. Right, right, right. So that was it. I was sunk.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, I, I'm the opposite, where I. I can only get into arguments where um, it's it's assured that no one knows exactly what they're talking about. That's that's the only chance I have of winning any argument ever. So so what uh, what is um, social cognition? Uh, the the field of social cognition. So
2: it it really is more an approach than a particular content area. And so okay. this is kind of part of a movement in the broader field of experimental psychology in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, where instead of looking at just effects, like when people are made to feel this way, they make this kind of judgment, Um, started focusing on the underlying mechanisms or processes, like how is attention um, diverted to different information? How do we encode or understand or interpret what we're perceiving or encountering? How do we represent it in memory? How do we remember it later later? And so it started to focus more on the underlying processes in addition to just sort of outcomes, like people make stereotypic judgments. And what social cognition would want to do is understand, well, why? Is it because they're paying attention to more stereotypic stuff? Is it because they have a bias when they see ambiguous behavior to interpret it in terms of a stereotype? Do they have a memory bias so that they falsely remember stereotypic things that weren't actually there? And so it's just a level
0: I really uh, i i saw a little bit of uh, i looked through your publications and i saw some of the stuff with um with the effects on ambiguity were really interesting. Can you explain uh, how like like for example the one about um about how being in a relationship can alter your uh what do you say like threshold for ambiguity or willingness to take chances?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, ambiguity, usually it's, uh, like, the best example I can give you for that is the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, because it got a lot of press attention. And when I teach about this uh, in my class, I've got a couple of actual newspaper photographs with the, you know, with the heading. And one of them is a picture of a white couple walking away from a store with a bag full of food, and the heading is something like, here are people who had to, you know, scavenge some food from the local grocery store if they were fortunate or something. Right. The black couple are walking away. You know, it, it says, looters leave the scene of the crime, basically. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. And so it's kind of the same behavior it gets interpreted very differently if you have a, a previous expectation about what members of different groups are more or less likely to do. Wow. And that was a really interesting example because the press you know they like they like a lot to uh, analyze themselves right and so they discovered that they were doing this and mm. then there was like a week of news coverage all about biased news coverage you know it got all meta and they, they were wringing their hands about how do we fix this and yeah hmm. that lasted for about a week <laughs> <laughs> i haven't heard anything about it since uh, uh
0: so so why in in your mind and and in, in, in kind of your field of study what's your interpretation of of that effect
2: yeah so this is this is a good place to talk about some basic 101 stuff great and there are kind of i would say three classes of explanation for stereotyping and prejudice the earliest is probably would be known as like the sick person approach that people who engage in stereotyping or prejudice have something wrong with them that they're trying to fix by treating members of out groups poorly, and this is a really Freudian kind of idea, kind of displacement, mm-hmm. like you're angry at your boss, you can't yell at your boss, so you hate your neighbor who's a member of a minority group right and It's kind of this displacement and the idea is that people who are going the people who are prejudiced are people who have problems like low self esteem or mm-hmm. you know insecurities of various sorts, and yeah, that was.
0: So I've talked a little bit about this before. It, uh, I have a background. First off, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm from a very small town in Wisconsin. Not very, very small, but a small town. And um, there was not much diversity around at all. And, I mean, looking back, I recognized that I was surrounded by a fair amount of um, bigotry and, and racism. And I I ended up, I worked in a, um, I worked in a factory um, for four years and there was that was like my first exposure to minorities or or a good number of them anyway was just the the mexicans uh, the immigrants that worked in that factory and it always struck me as and 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 again this is one this is probably one of the factors the the sick person idea that you're probably about to discount a bit (laughs) i i imagine but 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 it did seem that there there were times when it's like, you know, you're a factory worker. You probably didn't, a lot of these guys probably didn't lead the most uh, responsible, productive lives. A lot of the people that I knew just ended up, you know, they didn't go to college or whatever else. And now here they are at 50 working in some entry-level factory job. And rather than blame yourself, I do think it's easier to just just to be like, oh these damn Mexicans are are the reason why I'm at this position in my life. Yeah. Because otherwise you gotta take accountability for your own actions and no one wants to do that. Right.
2: And and that's a big part of it. And you know, the only part of this I'm really going to try and discount is the idea that it's an unusual thing that only a few people who have real problems do this Mm. eventually that idea morphed into the idea that that maybe everybody when they're feeling vulnerable or they're feeling bad about themselves becomes more subject to a stereotyping and prejudice Mm. and so it sort of became because we see you know in in lab studies and field studies we see a relatively high proportion of people demonstrate some kinds of biases it's not unusual to people who are really you know messed up
0: yeah yeah i mean if, if you hear this a lot even even in the stand-up comedy community you'll hear um it, you'll you'll hear it from all over the place it's either it's either like um minorities or or, or like female comics might be um blaming their uh Cause it's just a struggle being a stand up comic, but they might be saying they're being repressed by men or whatever. But then there's all the white male comics that are straight guys or whatever are complaining that, oh, it's just they're just giving everything to these people, you know, for diversity or, or whatever. And that's why they're getting ahead. It's not, I clearly have all the talent and blah, 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 <laughs> and it's being overlooked. Because you yeah. know, it, you know the, they're looking for yeah.
2: the Hispanic comics or the Black comics or whatever it might be. Yeah, um, and that's a good example of sort of motivated stereotyping or motivated reasoning about members of other groups. Hmm. That you're motivated to think highly of yourself, <laughs> and so sometimes to think well of yourself, you it helps to think poorly of others, right? Because the social comparisons are often you know right in your face.
0: Yeah, right? yeah. And well, I I mean that that bitter bug is just all over the and it's not even like a race thing. People will be like, um, screw that, like Chef Dunham guy. He does puppets. Why is he successful? It's like, well, that doesn't affect you in any way. You're not like. Maybe if you were also trying to do puppets, he'd be, like, taking your puppeting, <laughs> puppeteering there's job room, away from you. Yeah, there's but, only room for one puppet. <laughs> but, like, that's not, <laughs> it's not like he's taking your comedy club dates away from you or something like that. It, it's strange to just lash out, but it just seems like um, it's easy to identify, yeah. like, th- this, this person's different than me, and why are they getting... Yeah, and you,
2: you you raise a really interesting point about taking your spots away from you at the comedy club mm-hmm. because, you know, probably in the history of humankind, the single greatest cause of strife and warfare has been struggles over material resources, mm. land, food, women. water, women, salt, things like that. And so those old salt fights, that was a big deal. Salt is a big deal. I I read a, I read a gigantic book all about salt and how it was the key to our modern society and our modern division. Yeah.
0: That's so cool. What's the name of the book? Salt. Salt. No. <laughs> I was, how I didn't guess that yeah. is uh, <laughs> really a failure on my part, but I blame the Mexicans for me not <laughs> not, not thinking of that.
2: Um, uh, so, so it, I want to get back okay. to it. So there's there's the sick. So anyway, the idea with this struggle over self-esteem and feeling bad about yourself, the idea was that just like material resources like salt or water. uh-huh. Social esteem and self-esteem are also um, limited resources, Mm
1: -hmm. and they're
2: limited because not every group can be the highest status group in a given culture. And so the idea is that members of different groups, if you want to feel good about yourself, you have to feel good about your group, and if you want to feel good about your group, then at some point you have to decide your group is better than other groups. And Mm -hmm. so the idea was you don't actually need conflict over material resources to produce, you know, problems, conflict over the quality of your social identity, and how you felt about that could be enough to produce warfare and things like that.
0: What's that quote, I was just reading it the other day, something like, um, it's you against your brother you and your brother against your father, you, your brother, and your father against your neighbor, You, your family and your neighbor against your city, your city against the other city.
2: Yeah, it's all social categorization, like what level you categorize, and it depends on who you're comparing to, right? Like the only thing that's ever going to, you know, really, not ever, I don't want to be quite so negative or cynical, but, you know, the greatest Examples I think we've seen of humanity coming together is when we're about to get destroyed by some alien life form. Right. Then everybody is, when we're all humans. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's the yeah, Independence Day no. effect, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. Except the Americans are still in charge. Right? <laughs> but,
0: you know, it's. I think Arj Barker, who's I believe this is his joke. I hope I'm not butchering it, but it's a hilarious joke <laughs> where he talks about it. he's like, I, I hope that one day the aliens come down, so finally humans uh, uh, you know Catholics and and uh, Muslims and uh, you know uh, Asians and whatever else can all band together. <laughs> With the aliens against the Jews, it's ah. <laughs> like a little twist on it. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, that is that is Does such it? an interesting thing to think about. About about like uh, we need aliens to fight to bring us all together. Well, I mean, people always talk about you know nine yeah. eleven bringing a whole country together in a way that we had never seen in, in this generation's lifetime. Yeah.
2: I mean like national tragedies bring everybody together and for Mm. a while people overlook the differences among us and we're all just part of the same group and then eventually it starts to fade. Um, but there's another good joke you you should, I'll, I'll try and find it for you. It's an emo Phillips joke. Um, and he goes – he's, like, having a conversation on a bridge with somebody, and, and they're talking about what religion they are, Presbyterian, blah, blah, blah. They go deeper and deeper. Was that, was that the 19 – was that the 1736 uh, version, or was that the, you know, 1798 version? Right. And they go through, like, 20 different levels. And at the end, he says, you know, was that whatever, Sinod A or Sinod B? He says A. And he pushes him off the bridge and says, die, heretic. <laughs> like, like, so, <laughs> so why –
0: I I mean, it, it's it's. I don't know why this is, but it's almost easier to comprehend seeing it at at that level of like it's me against my brother than me against uh, my brother and I against my father. It's almost easier to see it at that level than it is the like reductionist the way the way down like the what mechanisms are happening in the brain yeah. where people are then splitting yeah. like like you're comfortable with this group and yeah. then you find a different subcell subset of this group that you can, um, split into Is that all the same mechanisms like going both ways or is that an impossible question to,
2: well, I mean, there are a bunch of different mechanisms, right? I mean, some of them are, there are needs for distinctness that sometimes call cause groups to divide. Mm. Um, and people to, I mean, the best example of that are like high school clicks, you know, it's the breakfast club thing and hipsters hipsters and you know what and and that's a need for distinctiveness but there's mm-hmm. also a need for belonging and so these kind of mid-level groups are especially appealing to people especially teenagers who are trying to understand their identity these cliques are perfect because you're in like your own gang mm. and you guys share a bunch of stuff together but you're different from those other gangs so you sort of get you know you get your belonging and you get your distinctiveness at the same time so that's that's another motive altogether, aside from self-esteem. There hmm. there are a bunch of different motives people talk about.
0: And what's interesting about that too is, say, you're like a biker, or even say a Hasidic Jew, where you have this look about you that that is is almost like repelling others that aren't in your yeah. group, uh, where where people are. Where you're almost ostracizing yourself, and it's almost like this. Um, it it almost then makes you bond more yeah. with that the others that are in this group because you've kind of intentionally, well, probably unintentionally. Um, yeah. It's kind of the structure of of these groups. Yeah. Um, whether you realize you're doing it or not, you've ostracized yourself by getting, you know, a neck tattoo or whatever it might be. Right, and- but. And part of of the
2: argument is that people want their groups to be as distinct as possible from other groups Mm. and positively distinct, which is where you get these, where people start sliding other out groups, but you want to be distinct. And so people have better memory for group members who fit the group stereotype, their own group stereotype than people who don't. They pay more attention to members who fit than members who don't because they want clear category boundaries of who is, who's my group and who's not my group. And we kind of the way we learn about people and think about people helps to reinforce those boundaries. And people who are kind of in the margins, you know, are kind of dismissed because we don't know what to do with them. And they confuse us if we're trying to have this clear idea about who is what.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. And it, and it is interesting how easily in, in like the different constraints that can be formed, like um, like being in CrossFit. Can be a group. It doesn't matter what race you are or religion or anything else. And you might have just joined three weeks ago, but like it, it's funny because I, I did CrossFit for like a year and a half or so. It is funny how soon you become a part of that in group, and yeah. and it is funny when they'll like sometimes talk about other other people as being lazy or 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 even like bodybuilders. It's like it'll it'll be like oh can you We're not like these meatheads that are out there just trying to pick up as much (laughs) stuff as as they can handle. You know, this is functional stuff, you know, or uh, there's a lot of like trash talking amongst what uh, what various forms of fitness you're into. even Exactly. (laughs) Not even, not even like this isn't even just a group of, Hey, everyone that takes care of themselves is, is cool with us. This is like, you got to do it this way. Yeah.
2: Right. And you know, when, when I was a kid, I was a punk rocker and you know, it was cool until too many other kids started to want to be part of it. And then at some point you start to think, okay, well, where's a, where's our group, you know? And you start to feel like this isn't my group anymore. And yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah. You get you get threatened by the assimilation with other people. Yeah,
0: you're you you make you you, you know you have all this fire and this passion and in your Kurt Cobain and <laughs> and and loving being a. a social misfit and and that's part of your identity, and then you become the most famous musician in the world, and everyone wants you to play your most famous And everybody song sounds all the time. like you all of a sudden <laughs> yeah yeah, and now you want out yeah huh that's interesting what do you it, and um i don't i don't know if uh th- this has anything to do with any of your work or not, and we don't have to talk about this, but um it are you familiar with any research regarding,
2: like, social networking (coughs) Uh, and its effect on this kind of... Yeah, there's some research showing that as as people are described from one person to another, to another, to another, the stereotypic features are retained at a greater likelihood than other features of the person. And so when you tell somebody about... So I've just... You've just read... Let's say you've read a a page-long description of somebody, and you have to tell this guy about the person you read about you know you got to tell joe about the person you read about and you're not going to remember that whole page of information so mm. you're going to try and extract some basic gist that you can tell the next person about joe and often what people end up telling the next person are the things that are that are going to help them understand the target better you know well he's a he's a weightlifter you know he's kind of a he's a meathead and he you know he likes to you know he spends 4 hours every day lifting weights or whatever you just describe things that were kind of consistent with people's expectancies because it helps them to understand and so yeah, things that yeah. are too complicated don't get communicated often
0: right it's like you know sometimes i'll i'll be uh talking about you know i i found myself in certain situations where I'm asking someone, like I'm looking for someone, and I'm asking someone else if I've seen them, and I'll be like, um, you know, have you seen like he's a, like a black guy? It might be a friend of mine. I'm not saying anything bad, but it's like that's what I'll go to because it's easy. It's a lot easier than being like, have you seen like a really thoughtful
2: person <laughs> yeah. around? Right, especially you know external features that are identifiable. Right. Yeah. I mean, but that's so that's but those become important social categories that's why sex age and race are kind of like often considered the big three social categories because they're really useful for describing other people Hmm. right i mean and and evolutionarily you know you kind of have to know maybe not race probably not but you have to know in group out group right them you have to know age because you got to know like how dangerous someone is how fertile someone might be and uh and you have to know sex, obviously. Is that a male or a female? And so the argument is that you know these three kinds of comparisons: in-group, out-group, age, and sex, are the most important ones, right? Because they're also really highly visible.
0: Hmm. Right. So I might be objectifying women by like looking for um, you know someone that's between the age of like say twenty and forty or something like that, and like uh, oogling that, but in our ancestral past, um, it would, it would have, I would have erred to gamble on like, oh, maybe this 70 year old woman is fertile. Right. Or something. That would be a poor it, prediction to me. Yeah.
2: It would just be important to, you know, if you're thinking about mating or, you know, your body is thinking about mating and mm-hmm. wants you to mate you know, it, it'd be useful to have some means of identifying potential successful mates. Hmm. and so yeah age and sex are obviously really important for predicting that
0: what about um talking about social media what, what do you think about like when people put banners up and st- like like you know the um uh, the the uh the supreme court just
2: just the you Redskins. know legalized the it, yeah there, there's the they lost uh, their patent on the on the team name like they yeah. are talking about the washington like no 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 no, okay. no. The, the the supreme
0: court that just legalized gay marriage yeah um and and now everyone is putting the banners up in support the the red pink and red like flag and and they're back or or you might see other people with like a confederate flag because that's the the yeah. issue of the day yeah. and these are nice like Little markers to... (laughs) Well, this is people identifying
2: themselves. Right, right. Right, and so sometimes we call that burging and... um, Burging? Burging is... Can you define that? Basking in reflected glory. Ah. Or corfing, which is cutting off reflected failure. And so Bob Cialdini, the great Cialdini, who has the best book on social influence ever, it's just called Influence, and he studied this, and his first studies were very simple. He had this giant lecture class at Arizona State University. And every day after a big basketball or football game, they would go around and count the number of students wearing ASU gear.
0: Yeah, I heard about this
2: study. And, you know, when, when the team wins, everybody is wearing the gear. When yeah. the team loses, everybody's like, that's not my team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so that's a kind of – and so when, when people are – We win, they,
0: they lose. That's right. And, there, <laughs> and there's
2: research on that also, right? You can see that if, if you go to any sports uh, forum, like, you know, like online forum, you know, you can see after a victory, everyone's like, we were great today. You know, and after a loss, they were terrible. <laughs> right, right. What's wrong with them? Yeah, and,
0: and oftentimes it's it's all it, it seems to be handy if you can find one particular person that screwed yes. up, so you don't yeah. just have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You yeah. just blame it on the one quarterback or whatever. You can yeah. still like the team. It's yeah. just that that guy's a bum.
2: Yeah, or the coach often. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. So I mean, flying flags like that—that's a way of demonstrating your identity that's hmm. a way of of claiming publicly an identity and saying i am part of this group um and because you're proud of it and you think it's a good group to be part of you want people to know that you're in that group hmm
0: so what do you what do you think about the stuff uh we've touched on briefly on the podcast before about about um people being um adverse to ambiguity or outgroups? Uh, when they are primed by like disgust, or or when um, there's there's uh, what would you call it like a high parasitic load in the environment?
2: Yeah. So this is a, a really interesting. I know that Steve Newberg was on one of yours, and he probably mm. talked about this.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, I think um, Maureen Zook was the okay. person we talked about first with it, but I think Steve and I might have touched. on Yeah, because Steve well. does a,
2: a lot of the best work looking at this stuff. And their basic idea is just that the content of stereotypes and prejudices isn't random. We have stereotypes and prejudices that fit the threats that we think different groups make. So if one group, you you know, you're afraid that you're going to get ill by having contact with them, the stereotype might be something about being dirty or might be a stereotype about being unhealthy. Whereas if another group, you're worried about them coming and killing you and taking your stuff... Then you would have stereotype about the group being aggressive or violent, mm. and so their whole point is that the content isn't random. You know, it's it's the content you develops to. Oh, account we for did
0: it. talk about this. Yes, yes, yeah. it's been a few months now. Yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I gotta listen back to my own podcast sometimes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so, so what do you think about that? Because you also, I just not to. Um, uh, go back to this if you weren't interested in talking about it. But that one particular paper struck me as interesting. Um, that was about being in a relationship, and I didn't even get all the way through. But it seemed like it, because I've seen, it, like, um, I, I think uh, my our mutual friend Marty Hazleton is doing some work with with falling in love, predicting that um, that uh, when you're when you're alone, you're. Defenses should be up a little more, yeah. but when, when you're with, uh, what it, some, something so about it, it, yeah. it, when you're with someone, your your immune response is up more because you're swapping germs yeah. with yeah. this person. This but but it seems like yours <laughs> was a, a completely different thing than that.
2: Yeah, I think. Um I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not certain which paper you're t- talking about, oh really?
0: <laughs> maybe it wasn't yours. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's okay that's a, I should have taken the clue and just uh avoided <laughs> the... Yeah. Um, uh, how about this uh could we talk a little bit about um because we've talked about different mechanisms driving things? Could yeah. we talk about uh, your work with um on dual processes yeah
2: so i, I before that I do want to make sort of a necessary detour. You know, okay. we, we were talking about sort of the three main approaches to understanding these things. Oh, yeah. There sick a, person. Yeah, there's a sick person. There's a sick society one, which is just that our culture um, broadcasts these stereotypes and prejudices, and we learn them through our culture. We learn them through our parents and through our peers and at school. And basically, they reflect a sick society, a society that has sort of institutionalized or inherent biases. Right. Um, and, you know, that's... and. And that approach basically says, in part, our stereotypes are developed by the roles that different members of different groups play. So if you see one group who are primarily in a, a I don't know, a, a dominant role, you know, we might decide that that group is especially competent, you know, or a group that's, you know, in, in a very submissive role, you might say that group's incompetent or something, which is kind of related to, to Steve Newberg's stuff about stereotypes developing to explain threats, Right. Similar to that, but I, I want to move past the 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 sick society one and talk about social cognition approach because that's mostly what I do okay and what happened in the <laughs> 1970s and the 80s is um, people started wondering based on some very basic cognitive mechanisms like attention and construal and memory, if stereotyping and prejudice might arise out of normal cognitive processes without any particular motivation so no real conflict over resources no motivational conflict over the value of your social identity there's no kernel of truth or real truth to the different roles that different groups play there's no you know a, a completely novel group if we're learning about a novel group are we is our machinery set up to find a way to split those groups and to identify them in different ways and make categories and prejudices about them? And so there were a, a couple of landmark studies in the 19, late 60s and early 70s that kind of showed, you know, even in these completely blank situations, like you're assigned to a minimal group, like you come to the lab and the experimenter flips a coin, and based on the coin flip, you're either in group A or group B. You never meet any members of either group, so you don't know anybody you're told you're never going to get to meet them we're gonna release you separately you're not gonna interact with them again and you have no interaction during the study but at some point the experimenter says okay well the study's over Um, we're gonna give you um, the responsibility of dividing up um, the money for having participated in the study you can give as much of it to whoever you want of all the different people and this is work by Henri Tajfel, and it's called The Minimal Group Paradigm and it was hugely influential. Tajfel meant that study to be a baseline where there would be no bias. <laughs> like there is no reason whatsoever to give more money to in-group members and out-group members. All the variables that we thought were important are stripped clean and yet people show persistent, reliable bias and and that kind of demanded explanation. Tajfel eventually settles on a motivational one. Others start exploring more cognitive ones. Like we categorize people into us and them quickly, and then we magnify the differences, the perceived differences between us and them.
0: Just for contrast, can you explain what the motivational
2: Yeah, um, so the, the motivational one is, is um, even though the groups are minimal, even though you don't know anybody, you still want your group to be somehow better than their group. Mm.
0: <laughs> and so... Because <laughs> yeah, you're in it.
2: Because you're in it. And yeah. so one way to positively differentiate your group is to just, the only thing you have at your disposal is to give more money to members of your group okay. and the outgroup, and And that's been the explanation. And it's, it's it hasn't fared all that well because it, it sort of suggests that when people when people have low self-esteem, they're more likely to stereotype. And that's generally not true. Um, it hmm. is true that sometimes if people are, are temporarily made to feel bad about themselves, they might stereotype or display prejudice to to um, regain esteem but in general people with low self-esteem are less likely to stereotype because it kind of takes you know a little ego to sort of decide that we're better than you (laughs) yeah so the, the contrast is um that really basic mechanisms that explain how we think about plants and animals and how we think about rocks and you know, any other category of stimuli in the whole world can explain how we would develop these different impressions of different groups and even different evaluations of them so that we liked some more than others. And, And that's the social cognition approach. And the idea wasn't that these other motives aren't important. The idea was that, isn't it fascinating that even if you strip away these cultural variables, these motivational variables, it seems like where somehow, you know, our systems are wired to produce bias.
0: I got, I've heard of um, some study where they just, it's basically the same sort of thing, but they just like, put a two different colored stickers on yeah. people when they come in like a yeah. red or a blue yeah. sticker or whatever pretty si- and then, then they just have them sitting around talking with whomever <laughs> they want and the blues are talking with the other their blues it's <laughs> and amazing
2: versus. how little it takes to get people to adopt a social identity
0: did you ever hear about the planet of the apes thing uh, so apparently um this is in like uh i i think um, a Charleston Heston autobiography and, and a couple other of the actors in Planet of the Apes uh, cited that. Um, so so there's like three different... There, there was yeah, like there's the orangutans, the orangutans, the gorillas, the gorillas, and the, and the chimps. chimps. <laughs> there's three different ones. And, and then apparently after like a few weeks... Uh, when when they would break for lunch or whatever, they they had they had separated oh, themselves wow. by Excellent. species, and these wow. would be actors that had been friends their whole lives or whatever. But it's like, well, you're a chimp now, so yeah, screw right. you. Exactly.
2: It's <laughs> a great it's a great example, and and it, it's it's spontaneous. It's not like the chimps all got together and said, "I hate those gorillas," right? Yeah, and yeah. You know, people just start to sort themselves into their groups and claim their identities sometimes hmm. and so um yeah and so that's where you know a, a lot of the research on stereotyping and prejudice since the mid 80s through i don't know through now a lot of it's been about these underlying mechanisms the motivational stuff has always been there also um the role-based culture-based stuff is, is there also as well
0: but so what are you doing to explore the social cognition aspect?
2: Of? Yeah, so what I've been doing, there, there are kind of two things that I do. One of them is a basic category learning thing. I'm interested in how people learn about social categories. And the basic mechanism that we've been studying is really simple. And what that is is when you learn about a new group that you've never encountered before, what you learn about that group isn't necessarily what best characterizes that group what you learn is what best differentiates that group from other groups you already know about. So if you're in group, you already think of your people as intelligent and fun and smart. When you meet a new group, even if they're mostly intelligent, smart and fun, those won't differentiate them from your own group. Mm. So you have to find some attribute that differentiates them. And so what people do is they look for features that differentiate groups from one another as the basis for stereotypes, more so than they're looking for what behavior actually best characterizes members of the group.
0: Right, right, okay. so if you're white, you notice a, a Jew's nose or something, yeah. ra- rather than all of the many similarities.
2: That's right, you focus on the things that distinguish groups from one another. And hmm. so that's one thing that I look at. The other thing that I, I'm interested in is how, um, it's, it's, again, it's partly about development, but also about change. Is how people form mental representations of social groups, um, associations in memory that link groups to both evaluations—how much we like or dislike the groups—and particular content, what traits we think members of the group possess. And so, you alluded to it briefly: these dual-process models, and that's—you know—this effort is sort of part of a larger almost field-wide obsession with that idea for a while now um can you explain the yeah the so process yeah i mean basically you know the the simple way to explain it is that sometimes we think really carefully about judgments and we we work through the decisions as rationally as we can and we try really hard and sometimes you know we're kind of overwhelmed of, And we don't have the time or we don't have the motivation or the resources to think very hard about things. And so we use shortcuts. Hmm. And so whatever, we say, okay, well, that guy's a lawyer, so he's probably really arrogant. You know, and and so we use things like stereotypes are one kind of shortcut that we can use when you don't really want to do the work to find out about an individual person. And so this kind of idea has made its way across pretty much all of psychology, everything from vision to psycholinguistics to judgment and decision-making to stereotyping and prejudice to persuasion. Pretty much every field has its own variant of a dual process model. And, you know, probably the most famous example now is uh, Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Thinking Fast and Slow. And Kahneman and his... You know his uh, colleague Amos Tversky were it's really a fantastic book. Yeah, I mean, they were instrumental in sort mm. of kind of producing this this distinction and uh, won a Nobel Prize for it, which for psychologists is a really cool thing mm. because you know we consider them ours right, nowadays. Right. Nowadays, the economists will call them behavioral economists, and we know that they're really psychologists. <laughs> they are not very behavioral... protective of. They that are end not group. behavioral economists. <laughs> But anyway, that is the basic, and and yeah, anyone listening who wants to get like a really nice and, you know, it's very readable, readable, smart introduction to the whole idea. Yeah, that's a really good book. Mm. And so, you know, part of where that intersects with research on stereotyping and prejudice in particular is from the 1950s, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, if we wanted to study stereotyping and prejudice... We just ask people, how much do you like white people? How much do you like black people? How much do you like Asian people? And people were always 100% honest every time, right? They didn't seem, you know, I mean, that you could get plenty of variability. And so, yeah, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, you could just ask people, how much do you like white people? How much do you like black people? And, and you know, they'd mostly tell you the truth. You know they were willing to say i'm I'm biased," and you know not everybody probably, but mostly mm. and around the mid eighties, people who study this stuff started realizing we can no longer find anything because everybody says we like all groups the same amount. nobody would admit explicitly to having bias, and so that produced the idea that maybe there were you know there was there was real bias or sometimes people would call it real bias. And I I wouldn't, but there's this underlying bias, and then there's what people will tell you. And the idea was to try and measure, um, and this has been a problem in measuring attitudes for like 100 years. Like, how do you measure the attitude without directly asking people to tell it to you? Because there are problems called that we call the willing and able problems. Sometimes people aren't willing to tell you what they really think, and sometimes even if they're willing, they're not able to. Right. And so we try and develop measures that that will reveal biases without directly asking people to tell us about them. And that fit in very nicely with the whole dual process approach, that there would be kind of this conscious version of it where you think carefully about how much you really like people and how do you want to present yourself and all these things. And then there's this more automatic part going on in the background where the bias lives. So how are you testing that? So um, the way, the primary way that people have tested that is by developing different measures to measure the two kinds of stereotyping. So you would use a classic questionnaire or something to measure what we would call explicit prejudice, where you just ask people, mm-hmm. or you give them a, a what we call a thermometer scale, zero to 100, you know, circle a number. And then people started to to develop a bunch of a new class of um, indirect measures or implicit measures to try and reveal people's biases um, without asking them. And mostly these are tasks where stimuli are presented to you like on a computer and you have to respond by pressing different buttons on the computer. And depending on how quickly people can respond to different stimuli or the number of errors they make in response to different stimuli, we can assign a bias level.
0: You know, I love these studies and I'm not sure we've ever talked about these specific, um, studies before on the podcast. So could you set up just a couple like, yeah, I mean, these? I should,
2: you know, I should probably give this just the easiest one because it, it, yeah, it's relevant and important and easy. So one group basically created a video game, um, that we call the shooter task. And the subject's job is you're basically just playing a video game and your job is to shoot, targets keep popping up on your screen and they pop up in different places and sometimes they're white, sometimes they're black, sometimes they're holding a cell phone, sometimes they're holding a can of soda, sometimes they're holding a gun. And your job is to shoot the people with guns, Mm. shoot the bad guys, right? And what happens is um, you find that it takes longer for people to shoot white guys with guns than black guys with guns. And Mm. probably more interestingly are the errors where people are much more likely to shoot an unarmed black target than an unarmed white target. Hmm. Okay. So
0: this is all over the news. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is, yeah. This is causing riots. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, yeah, and and
2: they're working with, you know, a number of uh, police departments across the country and you know, the, one of the punchlines not punchline, but you know, one of the results of their research is that cops aren't more biased than your average American. Mm. Um, they make fewer errors. They're more accurate. They're less likely to shoot an unarmed person than your average, you know, guy on the street. But they have the same level of bias. So they make fewer errors overall, but they have the same. They're not more biased. Mm. And so this, yeah, this is part of, um, you know, part of what's interesting about it is that um, the bias seems to be fairly I wouldn't say universal, but very, very widespread, and it doesn't correlate especially highly with what people will explicitly tell you, right? Mm. And so this is where all of this really became newsworthy. In my opinion, it sort of caught everyone's attention. Um, The most famous of these measures is is called the Implicit Association Test, or IAT, and this one is the one used mostly because it's very robust. It produces large effect sizes, um, and it's easily reproducible, and I was at a conference one year where the guy who created the measure, Tony Greenwald, had set up a card table. And at this card table, he basically had people doing the task, but instead of on a computer, they had picture, card, pic, cards with pictures on them that they were sorting into piles. And there was like a line down the hall of social psychologists lined up to do this. Yeah. And every once in a while, someone would walk away from the table just shaking their head Going, you know, <laughs> what the hell? And so, you know, I did it. And it's an interesting measure because it's measuring your bias. And you know that it's measuring your bias, actually. Almost right. immediately, you know what it's doing. But you can't control it very easily. I mean, there's still some debate whether you can at all. But so what, what you have happening is people who, like me, who had at that point spent, I don't know, 15, 10, 15 years of my life studying stereotyping and prejudice pretty certain that i didn't i wasn't a biased person mm-hmm. you know i was i was pretty confident confident that i didn't have any racial bias <laughs> right right but then you do this task and you're like holy moly you know there's bias there you could tell it's harder for me to it, it's harder some judgments are harder than others and that's where it started to get interesting
0: hm i mean i i know i've even noticed about myself sometimes like i remember i was driving by um, i i was in my hometown last summer and we have a lot of um mongs there uh, in, uh, laotians they they yeah. they are mostly and they they came to like Milwaukee and La Crosse, Wisconsin, and Minneapolis. So, probably a lot of people Which listening have like a
2: really bad place for mungs to go. Yeah,
0: yeah, it really is. Like, they must not be... have known better like, yeah, or something. This is a, I... as
2: far away from what you're used to as you can. Yeah,
0: yeah Anyway. So, so strange. But, but so I only say it because I'm sure listeners probably aren't even familiar. Um, but I remember I was just driving. Um, one day and there's like a park by my house and, um, and I was just like, I just noticed like a, a bunch of monks playing volleyball and I didn't like think anything bad about it or anything, but I was just like, Oh, look at that. But, like, I wouldn't have done that if it was a bunch of white people. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I had nothing against that Like, great, go play basketball. I'm glad you're here. But I still noticed way more than I would have if it, yeah, it was white it's people. Yeah,
2: because it's kind of atypical, right? And sometimes right. it's atypical things can grab our attention. Hmm. Like, when people engage in behaviors that violate their, our stereotypes – like, you know, you probably had never seen a group of Hmong just playing volleyball together. This is something you would stereotype as something that, you know, white people do. So right. it might grab your attention in part because of that.
0: Right, right, right. right. Hmm. And and do you think any of this is, is just, I mean, I feel like there has to be some sort of mental constraints with, like, you know, time is one, if you're measuring someone doing split-second things. But if you're, say, living in a small city with, um, you know, say uh, what's that? What's that Dunbar measure? Of, uh, is it like 150 people that they say like hunter gatherers would have got to like really know 150 people in the lifetime, and that's our yeah. what our brain is kind of built to. Um, deal yeah. with well. Well, if you're in a small city, say where you can, where there's a hundred people, and like my, my my dad's from a town. I think the population's about a hundred or 150 people, or something like yeah. that. Where you get to know every you single know person, and you know yeah. everything about their personality and everything, or a lot about their personality. Whereas if you're in a big city, I feel like um, it, you are prone to stereotyping more because you're just. You you just simply can't stop and get to know every (laughs) single person on the street that that you meet, and yeah, and
2: and sometimes you have to make really snap judgments. You know, you have to make really quick decisions about whether to trust this person or not, or whether you know you you want to hire this person or not, or whether you want to you know work with this person or not, whatever. Mm. And so, um, that's when the idea is that's when you are going to see these underlying or implicit attitudes um, be more impactful because people don't have the time to sort of correct their biases or think hard about, do I, you know, am I just using stereotypes here? And because that, that's requires motivation and ability, you know, to sort of correct yourself or, and so that's kind of the idea is that in those situations, stereotypes and prejudices are especially powerful.
0: Hmm. And are there ways, because it seems frustrating, because even, you know, I think Malcolm Gladwell and like his book Blink and everything I kind of wrote a lot about this. And I think this is kind of becoming a little more common knowledge that we're, people are starting to understand that this is a part of themselves. But like you say, you did your, ta- uh, your task, you think... You know, I study this stuff. I, I don't have these biases. Is there a way, and, and you're still susceptible to them, are there different ways in which people can be primed
2: to do better at these? So there's a whole bunch of research in the last, I don't know, 15 years about interventions to try and change people's implicit attitudes. And so the idea is, you know, how do we change these, what were assumed to be deeply held, long-standing which turns out to not always be the case. And it turns out it's actually pretty easy to move them around. Like if you, you know, if on a version of the task, I I didn't really describe the IAT in detail, but you see pictures of white and black faces and you have to make judgments about them. Mm -hmm. And usually they're white and black faces of people that you don't know, they're strangers. But if you swap in pictures of Martin Luther King and Charles Manson, people don't show, you know, a white favorability bias right right i mean so that's a really simple way to undermine it is if you have known individuals who are liked or disliked but you can have people practice um correcting their judgments for a while and then sometimes then you can measure it later and show that the practice helped them to show less bias on a later measure Hmm. um gosh so many these interventions um Interventions where the person you're in the room with either appears to um, encourage bias or not uh, seems to change what attitude is expressed by people, even implicitly. How do they? So, you know, you might have a white or black experimenter. Okay. And people show less implicit bias if there's a black experimenter than a white one. Um, The assumption is that the black experimenter cues cues associations that are less biased more positive ways of thinking about black people. Mm. Um, And so different associations are brought to mind. Another one is you can use context. So if you show the same white and black faces, but you vary the background so that in one case, the the white people are in front of schools, for example, and the black people are in front of like, are are in jail, Mm. that will intensify the bias. But if you flip it, so the white people are in jail and the black people are in school, then people actually show a pro-black bias or more of one, oh. and so that's another clothing black black targets wearing suits and ties and white targets wearing beat up clothes, you know. So context matters, and and what it's really the idea is that we have a whole bunch of underlying associations that can be activated, and in any, any given context or situation, a different subset of those things are going to become salient and drive our thoughts and behavior. And so you can push them around pretty easily. Actually, they're easier to push around than people's mm. explicit judgments in some ways. If I ask you, do you prefer Snickers or Milky Way? Snickers. Right, okay. <laughs> and the thing is, it's going to be really hard for me to change that attitude. Right. But if I'm measuring it implicitly, I might be able to spend like 30 minutes pairing Snickers with grotesque pictures subliminally Right. and Milky Way with lovely, beautiful pictures and and push your implicit attitude you know, toward Milky Way. Hmm. Um, But I'm never going to convince you at an explicit level that you should stop buying your Snickers and buy Milky Way, you
0: know. Hmm.
2: Um. So this was one of the ironies is that people, when we started talking about these implicit attitudes, the the idea was, in one famous paper, infamously referred to it as a a bona fide pipeline to the real attitude. So the idea is there's one real attitude sitting in your head and we just have to find it and then we'll know what people's real attitude is. And the idea was that, you know, those are going to be really old, like from time we were young kids, they're going to be really stable, they're going to be really hard to change. And all of that turned out to not be true. It turned out that there's not one true attitude, but there's a whole bunch of sources of attitude that get activated differently. Hmm. And so they're pretty easy to push around by focusing people on one set of associations or another one.
0: Okay. Uh, I, I just thought of a question I have for you. But before <laughs> I ask this question, why don't I, uh, why don't I, I quick um, ask, uh, what is the charity of the week that you would uh, like? The
2: charity I selected was Sierra Club because, you know, I like what they do for the environment. I think they're very um, pragmatic and proactive, and it's a group that I belong to for a long time. And um, yeah,
0: that's fantastic. Please go to the Here We Are Podcast website, and I will have a link under uh, Jeff Sherman's um, episode. And uh, Jeff, uh, well, one um, is there is there any work you're doing that you're really excited about right now that you haven't had a chance uh, to talk? there's <laughs> yeah, probably tons I, I, and tons of stuff.
2: I can but, only tell you like vague details because first of all. We don't have enough data yet. I'm not yet confident enough. Yeah.
0: And you don't want to get scooped no. by all the many uh, scientists yeah. listening to my <laughs> right. podcast right now. Right. I'm sure, um,
2: I'm, I'm sure they're out there right now taking <laughs> <laughs> Um
0: All right. A uh, better question. How do I get everyone to like me?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs>
0: Do, it's probably more about having Asshole. as few things uh, that people can pick out to dislike me. Yeah, maybe I mean, just be as boring as possible.
2: No, you know you want to you, <laughs> you want to have you know you could you know get facial surgery. so you have like a trustworthy looking face. <laughs> yeah, you know there, we, we have hundreds of ways to do it. Compliment people, touch people, they like you better. But these these aren't necessarily about you know, stereotypes. Like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but. All right. Okay. Similarity is a good way to get people to like you. Tell them that you like the same stuff.
0: It's a it's a silly question. Here here's a better one. Um, you uh, like myself. I feel like I was raised in a fairly uh, bigoted in, environment, um, and and it's something that I've had to uh, work on quite a bit. Do you have any pointers for people? Um, that, that they can, if this is something that they're recognizing about themselves. Yeah. Um,
2: and so, you know, there are lots of self interventions that, I mean, this is a really popular topic, not surprisingly. And, you know, it's like any habit. You can think of it as a habitual behavior. You can think of prejudicial responses or stereotypic responses as habitual responses. Mm. And just like, you know, other habits, when you're not thinking too hard about it, when, you know, your mind is wandering when you're not concentrating. When you're tired. Or... When you're tired, yeah, habits take over. Right. And so being mindful of, you know, your, your own use of these biases. Like recognizing the cues. Recognizing are... the cues, right? And so Margot Monteith is someone who's done a lot of research on this and how it's, it can be a negative feedback loop. Hmm. So you catch yourself, I don't know, maybe you laugh at a, a racist joke. Right. And then immediately afterwards, you feel bad about that. like you feel like, "Oh, that, that actually isn't funny, and I wish I hadn't laughed." The idea is that you start to recognize the contexts in which you're likely to behave in ways that you would prefer not to. Mm. And then eventually you get so good at recognizing those situations that you can replace the unwanted response with a more desirable response, even in a case where you're tired. Or under cognitive load, or whatever. that becomes your new habit. It becomes your new habit. That's right. You're basically replacing an old habit with a new one, and and that's I think that that's probably a really good one. Um, Mazrin Banaji, who's one of the first people to study these implicit attitudes, I was once told, I think it's true, but I don't know, that on her computer screen in her office, she has subliminally flashing constantly um, pictures of famous black. Leaders and scientists and women who are scientists and leaders. She's basically bombarding herself subliminally, constantly, with counter-stereotypic individuals,
0: so she can impress all the other social psychologists. Next time there's the card <laughs> trick, yeah, the at card the trick. conference,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except, except if that ever happened again, no one is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> no one's lining up. Everybody, everybody already knows. But I, I do want to put in a plug here for one way to know if you, if you're curious, do I have a bias? Mm. You know how strong is my bias? What might I do about the bias? There's a website called Project Implicit. That's hosted at Harvard. I think it's projectimplicit.org. And um, I feel they like
0: have, I just read about this. Maybe it was on some of your site or something. It like could that. be, yeah. Know.
2: Or or it could be that. Uh, I mean, Gladwell may make reference to it in Blink. Also, mm. um, he he talks about some of their work. Um, but there, you can go take a whole bunch of different implicit. Tests you like can, these kind of tests you've been talking about. Yeah, you can do with race, ageism, sexism. You know, you can if if you want to decide whether you implicitly prefer Pepsi or Coke. They had one on there for a while, just because I don't know why.
0: Right, right, right. But
2: um, it will tell you, you know, how how much bias you have, and it'll characterize it as you know moderate or weak or you know. Yeah. And then yeah. then I believe they will direct you to resources for ways you can reduce your bias right and so um it's a really so uh,
0: you're from wisconsin and you really want to open yourself up to <laughs> you you want to start dating a vikings fan or something <laughs>
2: something like that <laughs> so you want to get over that hang up so you must be from a different part of wisconsin because for him it would be a bears f- oh, the, that that would be the the, the line you don't cross <laughs> um all right well
0: thank you jeff sherman for the wonderful uh conversation and please everyone go to the here we are website and find out more about jeff and his work find out about um, the, about the sierra club and the project i can't even ri- read my own writing what's it called project implicit implicit check that out and i will talk with you guys next week thank you Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure and tune in next week. Um, uh, this this was, I think we have two really awesome ones in a row. I'm uh, I'm assuming that you just enjoyed that episode that you just listened to. I imagine you did. If you're a fan of the show, uh, why wouldn't have you have liked that one? You did. I'm just going to assume that. Why am I still talking about it? Next week on the program, um, a good Friend of mine, uh, from way back in my days in Boston years ago, we've known each other for I don't know eight years or something like that. At this point, John O. is on. He is a comedian who used to be a neuroscience who studied, um, the the um, he studied cocaine addiction on um, on rats and mice. Essentially, um, if you listen to the uh, Foster Olive episode a while back. Um, that was, uh, I thought, one of the better ones, and a lot of people wrote and really enjoyed that one. So, if you liked that one, you'll like this. In fact, I would highly recommend if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to that before next week because um, we set up some more basic stuff in the Foster Olive one, and then next week, with John O'Zalay, we're going to get a little more involved. Things are maybe going to get a hair more complicated. Not really, but we're going to be assuming that you listened to that episode from before. So, even if you did um, listen to it, however long ago that was—two or three months ago or whatever—you um, may want to go back and listen again. I don't mean to make you do a lot of work. You can you can listen to next week's episode without doing all that. I think we'll just add a little something. Um, but anyway, in the meantime, you can also check out um, t- check out JonoZillay.com. That's J-O-N-O, his first name. He goes by Jono, and then Zillay is his last name, Z-A-L-A-Y, JonoZillay.com. And you can go on and check out, uh, he's a really funny stand-up, and he also has his own science podcast. Science podcast fans, anybody listening to this, a science podcast slash comedy fan, um, uh, you can check out his podcast, Universe City. So uh, that's all. A couple quick plugs for that, let you know what's going on next week. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you then.